the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for this opportunity, uh, especially to reflect on how Israel uh, received its first king from the Lord and all the theological implications that are tied to kingship, which begin a story that helps the people of Israel understand how God is their king, a story that is ultimately fulfilled in the fullest way when Christ comes into this world, true God and true man, and does the will of the Father, giving his life for our salvation. We ask you to bless us and guide us. We ask this through Christ our Lord, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to the podcast. My guest today, as you've just heard, is Father Tim Peters, who is ordained to the priesthood in 2003 for the Diocese of Orange. Afterwards, he became a parochial vicar for several different parishes, and in 2016 came to St. John's Seminary as a professor of biblical studies. 2017, he defended his dissertation on the theme of Messianic hope in the Second Temple period at the Angelicum in Rome. Uh, and Father Tim has a YouTube channel where he uh, talks about the scripture. You can search for that on YouTube, Father Tim Peters. First of all, Father, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a blessing to be here. Uh, today's episode is a bit different from the previous episodes that we've done. Father Tim and I were having a conversation a week or two ago, and the idea arose that we should have sort of just a, a deep dive into an Old Testament passage. And Father Tim asked me to choose the passage, and when he did that, I knew immediately the passage I wanted to discuss because... Uh, it's been haunting me, and I, 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 I use that word deliberately for several years, and I don't quite sure know why. And the passage I'm referring to is 1 Samuel chapter 8. It's not a long chapter, so I think just for, for everybody's uh, sake, we should just take uh, two, maybe three minutes to read it. It's an entirety, just so that we're all on the same page. Uh, so a reading from the, fir the bo uh, first book of Samuel. Can I, can I yeah. give them, uh, 30 seconds of background before you read this passage? Sure. Uh, this, is, this, is a, this chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 8, is, it's a pivotal chapter uh, in Israel's history, uh, especially when you look at the story uh, from the book of Judges all the way through 1 uh, Samuel, uh, this continual storyline. Uh, and there's a climactic moment where Israel uh, wants a king, uh, and they go to Samuel asking for a king, and God says, I'm going to allow them to have a king, but know that you have rejected the Lord your God as your king. This is, this is really important to understand theologically, because they're asking for a worldly king. God wants to be their king, uh, and it begins another storyline that comes to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. When our Lord Jesus comes into this world, what is he called? If you go to Revelation chapter 19, he's called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's one of, one of his titles. So without any further ado, let's take a look at this chapter. In his old age, Samuel appointed his sons judges over Israel. His firstborn was named Joel, his second son, Abijah. They judged at Beersheba. His sons did not follow his example, but looked to their own gain, accepting bribes and perverting justice. Therefore, all the elders of Israel assembled and went to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Now that you are old and your sons do not follow your example, appoint a king over us like all the nations to rule us. 
Samuel was displeased when they said, Give us a king to rule us. But he prayed to the Lord. The Lord said, Listen to whatever the people say. You are not the one they are rejecting. They are rejecting me as their king. They are acting toward you just as they have acted from the day I brought them up from Egypt to this very day, deserting me to serve other gods. Now listen to them, but at the same time, give them a solemn warning and inform them of the rights of the king who will rule them. Samuel delivered the message of the Lord in full to those who were asking him for a king. He told them, The governance of the king who will rule you will be as follows. He will take your sons and assign them to his chariots and horses, and they will run before his chariot. He will appoint from among them his commanders of thousands and of hundreds. He will make them do his plowing and harvesting and produce his weapons of war and chariotry. He will use your daughters as perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take your best fields, vineyards, and olive groves and give them to his servants. He will tithe your crops and grape harvest to give to his officials and his servants. He will take your male and female slaves as well as your best oxen and donkeys and use them to do his work. He will also tithe your flocks. As for you, you will become his slaves. On that day, you will cry out because of the king whom you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. The people, however, refused to listen to Samuel's warning and said, No, there must be a king over us. We too must be like all the nations with a king to rule us, lead us in warfare and fight our battles. Samuel listened to all the concerns of the people and then repeated them to the Lord. The Lord said, Listen to them. Appoint a king to rule over them. Then Samuel said to the people of Israel, Return each one of you to your own city. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Well, I want to ask you, uh, Dr. Stewart, first and foremost, uh, uh, you need to tell me what you know where the uh, where the ghosts or demons are Mm. here. Where the where are the problems here? What 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 are you? What are you getting at? And then we're gonna we're gonna go into our conversation after you. After sure. You well, I, I definitely wanted to talk that. about that. Um, it, it's not so much with the passage mm-hmm. itself, but moreover the the the, the see, seeing the themes uh, of the relationship between uh, the Israelites and God mm-hmm. and twenty uh, first century America and God. Um, mm-hmm. So I definitely have some some questions to bring up on that earlier. But I think before we jump into my sort of uh, uh, hauntings, we should focus on the text. And you've already started to dig into that a little bit. Okay. Why don't we start with the historical context? What's going on in Israelite it's, history exactly, at this point? Exactly. So, so um, this text really, uh, it, it covers what you might what you even call a mega theme in Scripture, a theme that, that runs throughout Scripture. And of course, it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ, our Lord, um, and you, you really have to go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 17. And in Deuteronomy chapter 17, the Israelites, uh, they're getting ready to enter the promised land, and Moses gives them a series of speeches, four long speeches, 
Uh, and in chapter 17, he talks about kings, and he also talks a little bit about priests and prophets as well. Uh, if, you, if you go from 16, 17, and 18 and look at those three chapters. So in chapter 17, he gives what is often called the law of the king. You can find it in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 to 20, the law of the king. This law is so important because, because it was a specific law for what Israel would do if they chose to have a king. So when you read verse 14, this is amazing. You read it, it says, When you come to the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are round about me. You shall indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. It ha- the king has to be chosen by the Lord your God. But what's interesting is the, it's kind of a warning. The Lord is saying, you know, you can do this. You don't have to do this. And, and when he gives this warning, he says, if you, he says, if you say, I will set a king over, over me like the other nations. Do you see, you see the problem here? Hmm. The Lord knows his people, there's something in them, and, and they may want to be like the other nations. And that's actually not good, okay, um, because Israel was different. Uh, all the way back in Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 through 6, the Lord said that his people were a kingdom of priests. They were a treasured possession. They were a holy people. They were set apart from all other people. That's one of the key characteristics of what it is to be holy, to be, to be set apart for a special purpose or work. And not only that, but yeah, there's a tendency in Israel, if you look at their history, to want to be like the other nations rather than wanting to conform their lives to this incredibly lofty calling that they have. So in the Law of the King, when you read it, it outlines all these things that kings should not do. They had to be chosen by God, and, and it goes on and it says, now tell me if a king, if you heard of any king in Israel doing this, okay? Um, you, you must, you must uh, be one of your brethren. You can't put a foreigner over you. This would qualify Herod, disqualify Herod, by the way. Hmm. He must be one of your brethren. You can't put a foreigner over you. Uh, so here's, here's what it says. It says that the king cannot multiply horses for himself. He can never cause the people to go back to Egypt uh, in order to multiply horses. Um, he shall... Um, he shall never multiply wives, okay, lest his heart be turned away. He shall not multiply silver or gold, okay? Now, a lot of scholars will say that the law of the king, if you read it closely, Solomon broke everything in this law, <laughs> apart from the fact that he was, you know, the son of David. Right, right. But he he pretty much broke everything. He multiplied horses. He really multiplied li- wives. His, mm-hmm. his heart was turned to false gods. He multiplied gold and silver. Um, the, the kingdom was glorious under Sol- Solomon. The only thing is he broke just about everything in right. the law of the king. Yep. Uh, and, and it started a, a trend which led to the division of the people of Israel, where they split into two different kingdoms. Now, now, as you go on, here's also what it says. It says that the king shall have a copy of the book of the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, which would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, 
Numbers and Deuteronomy. And, and so he'll have that copy made, and he should read from this book every day of his life. The vision is that the king would be an ideal example of how to live the faith, a man who loved the law of God, who read from it every day of his life, and who made sure that the law of God was upheld in his kingdom. So, so the ideal is, is that the king becomes a living example to his people of how to live the faith. How many kings in Israel's history were a living example? Mm-hmm. Not many. Yeah. And not only that, but the law of his kingdom would be based on God's law. And so, in essence, God's kingship would be upheld through his kingship. His kingship would complement God's kingship so well, so perfectly that it would really be God's kingship upheld. But this this gives you, you know, th- this gives you a model here that you know virtually all the kings of Israel did not follow. But it helps you to understand something about Jesus. You know, when you when you sit back and you look at the law of the king, you go, "Wow, this is amazing because this is exactly what Jesus has come to do." And the way that Jesus expresses this is that he has come to do the will of the Father. Mm-hmm. He is, and so here he is, the king of all kings, and over and over again he's doing the will of the Father. He's essentially, you know, all of his kingship is so that he can make the Father's kingship a reality. Um, but, but another beautiful thing is, if you go to verse 20, it says that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren. So he'll, he'll be a man who's not lifted up over his brethren, but among his brethren, to treat them, you know, as, as you know, kind of with respect and dignity, you know, almost as equals. And, you know, you see this in Jesus' ministry, the way that he's around people and interacts with people and the, the, great, the great love that he, that he shares with others. His heart is not lifted up over others in a prideful way. Um, and, so, and so the law of the king is so important to, to, to get a little background. Now, the second part is, of course, if you go to the book of Judges, and, and if you initially, when you go to the first couple chapters of Judges, the Israelites keep falling into disobedience. They're, they're going back to Egypt spiritually because they keep making the mistake of their forefathers. They're worshiping false gods. They're breaking the covenant. There's violence and so forth. And so God raises up these judges in Israel. And one of the one of the words that's used to describe the judges is Moshia. Moshia literally means a savior. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. So so the, through the book of Judges, the people of Israel were learning something about salvation. God would raise up these judges who were different than how we consider a judge in the sense that they, they were really heroic saviors of the people in many ways. And so they were learning about salvation. There's only one problem. You, you don't find the people of Israel in Judges really repenting of their sins and becoming obedient to the covenant. It was kind of more like, you know, the spoiled kid who gets out of trouble and then just keeps getting back into trouble and gets out of trouble and keeps getting back into trouble. There's no repentance. So this cycle just keeps repeating and repeating through the book of Judges. And then you get to the you get to the story of Gideon, which is in Judges chapter 6 through Judges chapter 8. And this man is a heroic judge, a, a man of, of great faith. 
it's a beautiful story because he he has a lot of questions and a lot of doubts. It kind of reminds you of Moses. He's you know trying to come up with a question, you know, to get out of his vocation, which doesn't happen. And then finally, there's this amazing victory where Gideon, with only 300 men, is able to defeat by scaring away an army of 120,000. I mean, you're outnumbered 400 to 1. That's, it's the victory over the Midianites. And, and, and after this victory over the Midianites, which was such an amazing victory, they wanted to make Gideon a king in Judges chapter 8 verses 22 to 23. And Gideon basically says, no, 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 no. The Lord your God will reign over you. God will be your king. Now, those are the words of a righteous man. However, right after that, Gideon makes a couple of huge mistakes. So (laughs) first he, you know, the Midianites love these gold earrings. I don't know why, but they loved gold earrings. Mm -hmm. And so Gideon had all these gold earrings collected up for himself, and he he made them into what's called a gold ephod. We're not 100% sure what the heck this thing was. Mm -hmm. An ephod, uh, according to um, Exodus chapters 25 to 28, it was a priestly garment uh, that the high priest wore. Uh, but this particular ephod, it's, there, there's mention of certain ephods that were idolatrous in the book of Judges. We're not sure. In some way, they, it, they were some type of idol. Long story short, at the very end of his career, he led Israel into a form of idolatry. And then one of his brothers, or half-brothers, Abimelech, tried to, or I'm sorry, one of his sons, Abimelech, tried to kill all of Gideon's sons. And, and Abimelech is an example of this cruel man who wants to make himself a king. Uh, and fortunately, his plan failed. When he was attacking a city, a woman threw a millstone over the wall and his head was crushed <laughs> by, by a millstone. Um, a theme that repeats twice in the book of Judges, a victory through the hand of a woman. Uh, the same thing happened when Sisera was trying to attack Israel in Judges chapter 4, and Deborah, the judge and prophetess, uh, helped Barak, and, and a woman named Yael pounded a tent peg through Cicero's, Cicero's skull as well. Uh, you see the theme kind of repeating again and again. It, it may harken back to the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis chapter 3.15, the, the, the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent that's, that's spoken of, which in the early church they referred to as the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, the first good news about the coming of the Messiah. Uh, but that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> So let's go back to Judges chapter, chapter 8 and 9. Things, mm-hmm. things start to change. Things are really getting out of control. And here's where the problem is. The judges themselves just don't have good moral character. So the next big judge you hear about is a guy named Jephthah in Judges chapter 11. And Jephthah, is, he's kind of like Rambo. I would compare him to like Rambo. He's the ultimate warrior on the battlefield. And, and that's the only reason they want this guy to be a judge. You know, he, you know, he, other than that, they wouldn't even want to be around the guy. But he, he's also a very rash man. And so he swears that if God gives him victory, anything that walks through this threshold of his, of his home, he will sacrifice to the Lord. And he gets victory, he comes back, and his daughter walks through. And he, and he offers his daughter as a sacrifice. Now, the narrative is trying to say, don't do this. But, it, but you have to know the context of the book of Judges. You have to know that things are spinning out of control. The judges, are, the judges lack good uh, moral character. 
and they're making bad decisions. And if you know that, you see what Jephthah's doing and you say, wow, don't do that. That's what happens when things spin out of control. Unfortunately, people make very bad choices, and he did. And then after that, you have this judge by the name of Samson. And Samson is a Nazarite. But there's only one problem with Samson. You have the Nazarite vow if you go to Numbers chapter 6, but Samson breaks every single part of the Nazarite vow. He's like Solomon who breaks every part of the law of the king. And so, you know, some literature on this says, well, you have the Nazarite vow, but then you have the Samson version of the Nazarite vow. You know, so he, he broke everything in the Nazarite vow. You're not supposed to touch dead, dead corpses. And what does he do? He goes up and he's eating honey right out of a corpse of a dead lion. Well, that's, a, you know, that, that's against the Nazarite vow. Uh, and then what else does he do? I mean, he's a man who's running around after all these women. It's very funny because uh, if you look at Samson, it reminds you of a lot of young people. Uh, the way a lot of young people are, are. He doesn't listen to his parents. He doesn't confide or trust in his parents. And instead, he goes out and makes very poor friendships. He, he uh, marries or befriends women that just want to try to use him. His own uh, best friend betrays him and commits adultery with his wife. And so Samson, he's just he's living this life of tragedy because he he's not he doesn't have a close relationship with his family, with his parents. And then every person that he tries to befriend, they just want to take advantage of him. Uh, and, and what's the big problem here? Samson doesn't seek wisdom. He doesn't seek to trust God, but he has more confidence in his strength than anything else. And, and, a, and a lot of young people are like this. They just have confidence in themselves, but they don't have confidence in the Lord, and their, their life unravels. And so, so you know, the one good thing that you could say about Samson is that wherever he was, the Philistines were terrorized. (laughs) (laughs) And I like to call that the Samson effect. I mean, it's just like you just throw him out there and let him do his job, and the Philistines are going to be running. Uh, But other than that, he he was no example at all. He was a a man of terrible moral character, uh, and he ended up dying in a tragic way. Mm. You know, it's kind of, you know, the story of his death is the story of his life. It's one tragedy after another. And yet that story is pl- is put in every child's Bible right, picture book. Right, right. And when I became an adult and I sort of read that story as an adult, my first thought was, why is this story in every child's picture book? It's it's right. not a story that you right. should be telling kids. Well, a- actually, actually, my my uh, thought is that the Israelites love to share the story of Samson with their children. But if you share the whole version of the story, it it kind of tells you once again how not to live. Don't trust in your strength, but put your trust in the Lord. Uh, Seek wisdom rather than, you know, know, a worldly type of strength. Uh, So, you know, in a a backwards way, Judges is telling us, don't do this because look what happens. And so after Samson, that's when things really spin out of control. Uh, There's you know, more than I could describe in, in the last couple chapters of Judges, especially Judges 19 to 21, they're almost hard to stomach. One of the most difficult sections in the Hebrew Bible where, where there's gross immorality, uh, murder, there's a civil war, and the tribe of Benjamin is nearly wiped out. The one thing about the Benjaminites is they were good warriors. They were good warriors. So 
Uh, this comes into play later because the first king is going to be a warrior king. He'll be from the tribe of Benjamin. But things are spinning so much out of control at the end of the book of Judges. It's it's just like watching a plane, you know, swirl out of control in the sky and just thinking, oh my gosh, it's going to crash. Uh, and then you get to 1 Samuel, and something amazing happens in Israel's history. God chooses a prophet. He calls a prophet. This is a monumental event in Israel's history, because now God God is calling a prophet, and his name is Samuel. And, and so what's going to happen through this prophet? Well, there's a few things that happen during his early life. Okay, first and foremost, things are still spinning out of control. The priesthood is corrupt. The, the high priest Eli has sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who are using their position to do immoral things and to gain economic gains uh, from the priesthood. So they're using the priesthood for money and for their own personal pleasure. Uh, and so the people know and they, they see, wow, our, pre- our, our, our you know, the sons of the high priest, they're very corrupt. And then another thing happens. The Ark of the Covenant is stolen by the Philistines. Yep. And so we've got corrupt, we've got judges who, you know, they can't make good moral choices. We have a corrupt priesthood. And um, now the Ark of the Covenant has been stolen by the Philistines. So over and over again, the question is like, if God is with us, why, why is all this stuff happening? Uh, and the easy answer would be because the Lord is not king in Israel. Mm. You're not following his covenant. You're not authentically living the covenant. Uh, and then things get even worse. Samuel's own sons are corrupt, and Samuel appoints his own sons as judges. Notice that. Yeah. And that, and that's where the story picks up here in chapter 8. So hopefully I've done a good job of sharing <laughs> how bad this situation was. Yeah. I mean, the, from the perspective of the average Israelite, we don't have a choice. This, this is a complete disaster. Uh, our leaders are, are a mess. Our, 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 priest, our priesthood is, we've got corrupt priests. Uh, our judges have terrible moral character. We've just gotten over a civil war. Uh, the Philistines have stole the Ark of the Covenant. And now Samuel the prophet wants his own sons to be judges, and he appoints them as judges, and they're as corrupt as you can imagine. So what would you think if you were in their situation, right? You would probably be thinking, let's go back and, and learn how to really live the covenant properly mm. and watch how the Lord is going to change everything. Well, that's not what Israel thought. Israel, mm. uh, they wanted to be like the other nations. And, and that's something that you know, becomes a, a main theme here. Uh, and so, and, and so the, the background to 1 Samuel 8 is so important. They want to be like the other nations. They see these problems. And if you go to 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, that's really the climactic verse right there that begins this macro theme in Scripture, where the Lord says in verses, in verses 7 and 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8, he says, that, he says let them have their king, but know that the people have rejected me as their king. That's amazing when you think about that. Now, one last thing I want to say is that if you looked at how the tabernacle was designed, uh, in you had it, um, you know, you had different areas in the tabernacle. You had the holy place of the tabernacle where you initially walk in. And there you would have an altar of incense. You would have a table with the bread of the presence, a special bread that was put before the presence of the Lord that only priests could eat. And you would also have a seven-branch candlestick, a menorah. 
And then you would have this veil, and behind the veil would be the Ark of the Covenant. And you, you would have two cherubim right on the plate that's on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the place of propitiation, it's often called. And, and then, it's also called the mercy seat too. And then you would have two large cherubim, and their wings would come to uh, meet each other right over the Ark of the Covenant. So what did this represent, where you had the angels on top of the Ark of the Covenant, over on top of the cover, and these large cherubim where their wings came together? Essentially, it's, it's representing that just as God is enthroned upon the wings of the cherubim in heaven, so he is enthroned in the midst of his people uh, wherever the tabernacle was. We're not yet in Jerusalem. Uh, the tabernacle was in a place called Shiloh for between 360 and 390 years, which is north of Jerusalem. But you can, with all that background, you can sit back and say, yeah, now I know what God is saying. The people, they want to they be like the other nations, and they've rejected the Lord their God as their king. So now we're going to talk about, now that we've had a little background here, um, I want to know what your questions are. Yeah, so that, that was an excellent <clears throat> summary. Um, this, I know for me personally, and I'm sure for most Catholics reading the Bible, this is a good example of the difficulty of, of it. So, for example, <clears throat> words like king and judge we at 21st century Catholics have a vision in our mind of what a king is. For example, King Charles, who just got a, uh, appointed a couple of weeks ago. Um, but the, the king or queen in England is very different from what you were describing. Most importantly, I think the idea of, of that, that spiritual aspect of the king in the biblical period, that the king is supposed to be, if there is a king, and the the exemplar of 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 following God's law, exactly, exactly. the 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 essence of the king was to be this ideal example to the people, uh, and also uh, a, a man who had a real heart for God, who who loved God's law, and so much so that it wouldn't be about his kingship, mm. but it would be all about the Lord's kingship. Yeah. And I think this is, I mean, if you just read chapter eight, like we did, it might sound a little strange to somebody who reads it and sees um, God saying to Samuel, the Israelites are not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And, and the instinct might be to say, what are you talking about, God? They're just asking for a king. But you have to know that the biblical understanding of what is a king, how is it different from a 21st century king? Judge, that's another word that we, we've already talked about, that a judge is not a Supreme Court justice, that the biblical judge, as you said, is sort of a heroic savior figure. Doesn't In the book, yeah, so they're described as saviors. Mm -hmm. so, so there's a very um, profound theology of what a judge is uh, in the Old Testament, uh, and it's a very lofty uh, understanding of what judges are. Uh, if you go to Psalm 81, it's it, it kind of like underlines that judges are like God because of the decisions that they make that affect people, um, and and so and and so in the book of Judges, the the because the judges helped Israel out of their predicaments, um, they they were they were called Moshiach, which means savior. Yeah, it's just amazing to think about that. 
despite the warning the Israelites persisted and they said, you know, we don't care what you just said, Samuel, we still want a king. And I think this is one of the countless examples in the Bible where we're sort of tempted to shake our heads at the Israelites for their ridiculous decisions. But we should always remember that in our own sin, we sort of echo that ridiculousness. Um, why do you think that they still wanted a king even after Samuel's warning? Why, why is it they want to be like everybody else? Why is it that the special covenantal relationship right. with God isn't good enough for them? Right. Why, why do Catholics always want the church to conform to the world and, and change every, every difficult teaching to be like everybody else? Right. You know, it's, it's a natural human tendency uh, when we don't focus on uh, God's absolute kingship in our lives. And, um, you know, it's, it's difficult to live a, a sacrificial form of love. And this is something that Israel's learning, is that in order to live the covenant relationship, the love that they have for the Lord must be a sacrificial form of love. They, and, and, you know, they're, they're learning this over and over again through their mistakes. Uh, of course, the other side is when, when they looked at how many problems they had, and just imagine the period of Judges was somewhere between 400 years and 230 years. We're not 100% sure because some of the judges probably were judges at you know the same time period. Mm. Uh, so scholars debate how long exactly this period was. But just imagine for hundreds and hundreds of years of having these problems, chaos, civil war and you know the ark being stolen by your enemies corruption in the priesthood corruption among the judges you would you would probably be pretty pretty frustrated i think you know and right. and and so what would seem you know the grass is always greener on the other side you yeah. know we never we haven't had a king yet so boy if we can only have a king mm -hmm. and be like the other nations and they persisted. You know, this is another sort of uh, a moment of hubris where God sort of, you know, we, we all ask, wouldn't it be great if God gave us very clear answers in our lives? Right. And he couldn't be clearer. And yet they right. continue. They right. persisted. And, 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 you know, this is something we do all the time in our lives because God is basically saying, you know, if you just chose my kingship, you wouldn't have to do all this. He's going to take your sons in the army and your daughters are going to serve him and he's going to take your vineyards and olive groves and a tenth of your produce and he will take your servants and a tenth of your flocks. Look at all you're going to have to sacrifice just to have this guy. If you would simply choose the Lord to be your king, mm -hmm. it would go much better for you. Mm -hmm. But but what do they think? Well, you know, uh, we we tried that. No, 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 <laughs> you, you didn't. You didn't try that. Um, it, you know, it's very funny. A lot of times I'll talk with people and, 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 uh, you know, share the faith with them and, and they'll say, well, you know, maybe I'll try to go to mass and I'll say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You don't want to just try. You want to, <laughs> you want to make a commitment to go. You want to, you want to give your whole self to, to walking with our Lord, uh, more than just trying. Because if we just say, oh, I'll kind of try this, we know it's not going to work out if we have that attitude. Um, so they, they ignored Samuel's warning. They, yeah. you know, thought, you know, their plan was better. And it's almost, I guess, maybe tragically humorous that God sort of shrugs his shoulders and says, well, you know, if that's what you want, you know, you, you're persisting. So right. fine, go ahead and, and have it. I, I, I like to say that the story of Israel's um, monarchy is like the movie The Good, 
the bad, and the ugly. Mm-hmm. And there weren't many good ones in there. So most of them were somewhere between bad and ugly. It's yeah. and, and it gets real ugly in right. some places. Right. Uh, of course, um, what's really interesting about this is that um, if you read the story from you know First Samuel through Second Samuel, First Kings, and then Second Kings, it gets worse and worse, especially yeah. when you get to Second Kings. But then when you go to look at the book of Chronicles, which is written at a much later date, the chronicler, because he's writing at a time that they don't have a king, has a much, much more positive view of the kings of Israel. Um, so, uh, y- yeah, without a doubt, by the time you get to Second Kings, you can see, you know, Israel really didn't make a good choice here. <laughs> But God uses this. Right. He uses this situation. So we'll talk about that in a second. I want to return to your questions here. Yeah, well, I just wanted to talk about um, a bit of, of the interpretation of the text down through the centuries. First, the Jewish interpretation, and the, and second of all, sort of how Christian communities over the last 2,000 mm-hmm. years. I did uh, spend a little time, my favorite uh, commentary series is called the Ancient Christian Commentary. It's, mm-hmm. uh, I have it online, and, and you... Uh, you know, it's it's like a biblical commentary. It has a paragraph, and then it'll give four or five maybe uh, short mm-hmm. uh, um, sentences or paragraphs from uh, early church fathers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this one has from Jerome and Augustine and Chrysostom and others. And there wasn't anything extremely juicy, I thought, that jumped out. I mean, there's somebody I'd never even heard of, somebody named Pseudo Ignatius, which I assume that's mm-hmm. Pseudo Ignatius of Antioch, and basically saying what Ignatius said, which was fa- follow the bishop, mm-hmm. which I'm like, okay, so there's one way of taking this ter- story and saying, you know, listen to the bishop. But mm. um, but yeah, the, the general question is, how has this text been interpreted or received down through Jewish mm-hmm. and Christian centuries? Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh, that's a that's a loaded that question. A that's a yeah, it is a little bit of a loaded question oh, okay. because you know, I can't I can't speak for Judaism because you have different opinions in Judaism, mm-hmm. you know, and so uh the way that an orthodox Jew might read this would be different than maybe someone who's reformed or conservative. Right. I mean, the the way that they might read it in light of salvation history is what I'm getting at. And so um I can I can simply tell you this that you know, when you look at what's happening here, um, you, you have to go back and look at what happened with Moses and the high priest. You needed a prophet in order to get a high priest. Mm-hmm. So, so Aaron was ordained as the first high priest, and Moses, as prophet, is instrumental in the consecration of Aaron as high priest. I mean, he's like right next to Aaron at certain points. And, and you see something very similar here with Samuel. In order to get a monarchy, one that everyone's going to follow, you have to have a prophet there mm-hmm. who can speak the word of God and, and without doubt say, this is God's will. And so, and so Samuel fulfills that role. Um, and so the very first king that's chosen is he, he's um, from the tribe of Benjamin, a tribe known for its warriors. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds good. Yeah. And he's a head taller than everyone else. Yeah. So he's he's a tall guy from the tribe of Benjamin. His name is Saul. This this has warrior king and people's choice written all over it. So <laughs> he's going to win the people's choice award and the warrior king award. And and he's the first king of uh, of Israel. And at at first he seems like he's a good choice. He's mm-hmm. 
filled with the spirit of prophecy. He's victorious, but there's only one problem. He disobeys the Lord on a couple occasions. And, and so what happens? So God says, no, I, I, he's lost my favor. I'm going to choose another king, and that king will be David. And so he tells Samuel, fill your horn with oil and go to Bethlehem and call Jesse and bring an animal to sacrifice so people don't know what you're doing. And so he goes to Bethlehem, he calls Jesse, he tells Jesse, bring out your, your sons. And Jesse brings them all out. He had eight sons altogether. He only brought out seven because the youngest was taking care of the sheep. And of course, you know, one by one, God rejected each one of those sons until they called David, who was pastoring the sheep, and then he was anointed king once again by Samuel uh, and filled with the Spirit. Uh, and there, there begins the story of, of David, uh, uh, the, the beginning of David's uh, kingship. David is a king, though, that no one recognizes. Mm. Saul is the official king, even though God has said no. The people still recognize him as king. He mm. still has authority. David is essentially the, the king that God has chosen, but there's only one problem. No one recognizes David's kingship, yeah. except for one person who begins to recognize this, one significant person, and that is Saul's son, Jonathan. And what's amazing about Jonathan, he's one of the most uh, intriguing biblical characters, because Jonathan naturally would have received the kingship from his father. Mm -hmm. And here's a man who's willing to give up heaven and earth so that David can receive the kingship. He recognizes somehow that this is God's will for David and not for me. And so I, I think Jonathan is one of the most admirable figures in the Old Testament. And, you know, there's nothing really lofty said about him yeah. ex except for this this life, which is the epitome of what we would view as, from a Christian perspective, of Christ-like humility, where yeah. you'll, you'll even hand the whole kingdom over to this man because you recognize this is his will. So, so Jonathan, I find to be, you know, just an absolutely amazing character uh, in the Old Testament. And what I, what I did want to mention is that the, the concept of David not being recognized as king, I think, is a very important theological concept, because the same happens to Jesus. Mm. Here's Jesus during most of his earthly life, and most people simply don't recognize who he is. So, so there's, there's, there's themes that we see in these Old Testament readings, and when we read the Gospels, we go, wow, I see the same theme in the Gospel. Yeah, he is, Jonathan is um, sort of a wise figure, and yet who's, who's, the one, who's called the wise one? It's the king that you mentioned earlier who broke all the, all the rules of the king. Yeah, so, that, so that's really interesting. Solomon had the gift of wisdom, and and if you if you study Solomon's uh, time as king, of course he he asks for the gift of wisdom rather than anything else, and so he receives the most precious gift. Uh, what makes Solomon a model of a king, and maybe more from a Jewish perspective than from a Christian perspective, is that he's the temple builder. Mm -hmm. And this is this is a very special understanding of what a king is: is that that only the king, you know, the king was a builder. That was part of the 
of his role as a king to protect his people and to to build up the city and especially to build the temple. And so Solomon is this example of what it is to be a man of wisdom and to be a temple builder. Um, and so if you, the first part of his ministry as king, it's beautiful that you, because you have this king who has the gift of wisdom and he's the temple builder and he builds a glorious temple for the Lord. The first temple was absolutely spectacular right. because the kingdom of Israel at the time that Solomon reigned was, was at its height. There was kind of a power vacuum of you know, the nations around Israel. And so the, Israel, it, it, the kingdom of Israel was at its height until, until Solomon started to marry all these foreign women. He loved foreign women. Uh, and he had 700 wives, 300 concubines, 1,000 women altogether. There could be some symbolism there because 1,000, it just represents this innumerable number. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in, and it's used like that in other places in Scripture. Uh, but to have 1,000 wives, and the irony, Solomon only had one son. Mm-hmm. And his son was the most despicable and spoiled son you can imagine, and who humiliated his father. Yeah. Um, you know, afterwards, I want to. I don't want to get into it, but right, you know, through right, right, right. through Solomon's son, the kingdom was was divided, and, and the scriptures look at it as Solomon had his downfall. He he married all these foreign women. He allowed them to build shrines to their um, to their idols, and even children were sacrificed to these false gods. And so, essentially, he allowed false worship and idolatry into Israel. Uh, and that ran rampant, and it resulted in the division of the kingdom. You mentioned a moment ago sort of a connection between Jonathan and how Jonathan was the only one who could recognize reality, and then um, during Jesus' ministry, how few, if any, recognized him. That brings in the question of connections of this story that we're talking about, First Samuel 8, with New Testament, do we see themes? Do we see patterns? What else do we see yeah. connecting? There, the there's there's a here? there's a ton of connections here. So number one, Israel wanted to be like the other nations, and so you know there's a there's a spiritual um, inability to really understand the Lord's will, and in, instead of seeking what God wants, you're seeking to imitate the other nations, uh, and so we we see that. You know, all over the New Testament, right. we see it. We see that as a challenge in our own lives as well. Um, and and so, you know, the, the other the the other concept is rejecting God as King, not recognizing His kingship. Yeah. And in even after you hear that you've rejected God as King, even after you hear all the problems that are going to result because of that, they still chose it. So just that stubbornness, yeah. the absolute stubbornness. Um, there's there's uh, much more that that could be said. Maybe frustration. You know, mm-hmm. if you if you look at what's happened up to this point, you read the entire book of Judges. You read the first part of First Samuel. You can you you see a people who are worn out and tired and frustrated, and they've 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 been through so many problems. And you know, when does sin when does sin come in? You know, when when we're ready? No. When you're tired, when you're frustrated, mm-hmm. when you're weak. When things aren't going well, when when you're upset, that's that's when that's when you know you, the enemy comes. That's when you're most likely to to fall, um, and that's when we have to really you know be aware of ourselves. 
Uh, so there's really just kind of like this story of absolute historical frustration um, that, you know, up to that point, you can, you can understand why the people are crying out and they want a king. Hmm. So getting back to your question uh, to me earlier about why is this sort of story haunting me? And, and I think, of course, we can see throughout the Old Testament parallels of what's going on in the biblical period and now. But in particular, it seems to me that Americans are falling into the same sin, um, not a sin of idolatry of a king, because, of course, we don't have a king, but the, the sin of idolatry of politics uh, in increasingly in our secular society We've marginalized God, and of course, as the old saying goes, nature abhors a vacuum. Uh, and so we put politics at the center of our lives, uh, and as seen by the centrality of politics in our public discourse, and I don't mean a specific politician or a political party or even a particular office. This is not a left versus right or right versus left critique. Uh, in general, it seems the claim, the claim seems to be the political realm will save us. Uh, of course, what exactly that means would be different depending on if we're talking about political progressives or political conservatives. But that general argument sort of po- just just on the on the news coverage on an average day, if there's no major event happening, what is the newspaper covering? It's covering politics. Right. And so it, when you read First Samuel 8 and you think about our culture today, what connections are you making? Right. And I, I guess um, I would agree at, at this level that I see very good people of faith who are more worked up and concerned about politics than about their prayer life, mm-hmm. than about really learning and mm-hmm. studying the faith. <laughs> and so what's happening is is um, it's important for all of us to be actively bringing our faith into every sphere of life. And if, uh, and if I would I would uh, be appalled if all Christians said, well, I don't want to participate in this, which is what some do. Some take the opposite approach, which is also wrong. They say, I'm not going to vote. I'm not going to even support pro-life candidates. And I say, what are you thinking? You need to go out there and support pro-life candidates and candidates who support you know the concept of marriage between only one man and only one woman woman and and so that the values of faith can become part of our society um, but what you, I think you're getting at is some people um, it's pulling away from their their spirituality their relationship with Christ their um, their ability to really interact in the church they're they're more worried about politics than actually living out the faith and being part of the church, being involved in the church, uh, and working on their own personal spiritual growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I do see the danger of this. This is something that we need to be involved in, but it can't be a distraction that does damage to our spiritual walk with Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, the, um, a lot of our news is um, centered on and built on sensationalism. It really pulls you in, Yeah, a, a lot of these stories. And so, you know, just look at how much time you spend watching the news and listening to, you know, these stories and reading them. And then ask yourself, am I spending the same amount of time reading Scripture, in adoration, in prayer, involved in my parish? Uh, and I would say that a lot of people might have to do a little, little self-check there. Sure. Yes. If we were to take God's and Samuel's cautions uh, seriously, that doesn't mean we need to eradicate politics from our lives. Um, 
What do you think a rightly ordered political life in our country would look like uh, based on the limits God would want us to p- place on the political? Right. Okay. Wow. Uh, and uh, you're, you're going to ask me to really offend some people here, you know, but first and foremost, I, I think a rightly ordered uh, political life w- would would be this, that we would not be afraid of offending people by telling them what we believe. Right. <laughs> we have to we have to stop this. Um, you know, I, I, we're trying too hard to appease other people rather than just saying, here's what we believe. And we, we believe this wholeheartedly. And I, I think if if we if we had more of that attitude as Catholics and and uh, we there would be big differences. And mm-hmm. I, one example is just pro the pro life vote. Right. I mean, if 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 all Catholics just said we're not going to compromise, we're only going to vote pro life, the, the entire political sphere would have to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but so many people said, well, you know, we got to kind of compromise here. Well, yeah, if you compromise, then you're going to be uh, sifted like wheat, yeah. Yeah, you know, it, uh, and so that's what we have right now. Maybe fifteen percent of the voting um, population is is pro life between Catholics and Protestants. Mm. Pro- probably most of those. So the you know, and there's Orthodox Jews. I should throw in there too. Mm-hmm. But there's a small fifteen percent group that says we're not compromising this issue. Now, if, if, if that's the first thing I would change, and the second one is issues of marriage. I mean, if if we if we, you know, spoke about this more as bishops and yeah. made more statements and said we're not compromising on this issue, we would see major changes in society. So I think there's a little bit of fear of just offending people, and uh, you know, it just goes back to we want to be like the other nations. <laughs> we want to be like the other right. yeah. Christians or or other people who are out there. Um, just and so, a secular culture. And, yeah, and so, so you know, as Catholics, we have to bring our faith into the public sphere, and it does. Obviously, it's going to affect politics because if we're genuine, it's going to affect every decision we make, and we're going to simply say we're not compromising, and that's the way we have to bring it into the public sphere. And I, I think, uh, you know, I've, I've heard so many talks on this where people just dance around in a circle yeah. and. And they don't want to. They don't want to say that you know you just can't vote for abortion. You can't vote for 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 politicians who support a different concept of marriage because we're going to have total confusion if you do that. And I, I think that when we when we ultimately go back to um, a charitable um, expression of we are not going to compromise. And, and we need to live this way. When we ultimately return to that, we will see major changes in the political sphere. Before I ask the final question, just throw, throw out a, a, a general, what did I miss? What did we not talk about from 1 Samuel 8 or how it connects yeah. to today that you think we, we, we can't stop this conversation unless we cover it? Okay, so, so what we need to talk about is 2 Samuel chapter 7. Okay. Because 1 Samuel chapter 8, is leading us to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And, and that's when uh, David uh, encounters a different prophet, Nathan. This is after Samuel has died. And Nathan says to David that God is going to build uh, a house for him, and his son is going to build a house. So his, right. son, his son Solomon is going to build a house, and that's the temple. And God is going to build a house for him, and that's the Davidic dynasty. 
And and so Nathan goes on and he explains that David will always have a descendant on the throne. We call that the dynastic promise, the promise of an eternal dynasty. And and this promise is so important to understand many uh, of the expressions that we find in the New Testament. Because, for instance, when blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10 sees Jesus and he says, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. It's like he's saying, you are the one who's going to fulfill this promise. It's an expression of faith. It's an expression that he believes Jesus is a potential heir to fulfill this promise made to David. And so that's what we didn't uh, hit. Maybe we can hit that some other podcast. But First uh, uh, Samuel chapter 8 is, is going to start a new journey that's going to lead to that encounter with David and the prophet Nathan, and where David is promised that he will always have an heir, a descendant, a son. Literally in Hebrew, it says Zerah, which is seed. He will always have a seed on his throne. There's great. There, there's three great promises that have to do with a future heir or a future seed. The first is the Proto-Evangelium, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. The second is that the seed of Abraham, through the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And the third is that the seed of David would reign upon his throne forever. Now, those three great promises, the Proto-Evangelium, the promise made to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed of the earth, and that David would always have a heir, a, a descendant, a son on the throne, those are all fulfilled in Christ. Final question. We are a people of hope, specifically hope in the resurrection. Uh, when you read this Old Testament story that we've been talking about and think about the folly of the Israelites, and you look at our own cultural moment and think about the centrality of politics in our lives, what gives you hope that we as an American people can obtain a rightly ordered political life? Well, you're, you're asking a lot there. I mean, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> but I'm asking the right person. Yeah, you're asking a lot there because uh, one could... One could um, justifiably argue that we're we're in more more hot water than the Israelites but uh uh you know it is funny though when you when you look at the story and, and you see you know all the mistakes that they made and then you go wow you know we make a lot of those same mistakes you know look at look at how patient the lord is with his people and a lot of times people will come to me and say you know why is the god of the old testament so judgmental so cruel and i'll say hold on a second you need to read <laughs> yeah, the, read it you need to really spend some time reading the old testament and right. you're going to see how god is slow to anger he's merciful with his people he's working with his people and of course he does discipline them as a father and and there are moments of of great chastisement for israel because of their sins but I think I'm most impressed by God's patience and mercy when I look at these stories. And, and I think it, it really helps me, you know, when I look at the craziness we have in our world, mm -hmm. you know, to not lose hope, but to keep living the faith and keep sharing the faith with others. Because it's only through the faith 
that we're, it, it's only through Christ, it's only through the faith that we're going to have real, true change. Father Tim, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. I definitely think we should do this again. Absolutely. I look forward to another time. Thank you, Father. <laughs>